Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Now what I'd uh, like to invite you to do uh, right now, if you possibly can, is to grab hold of a a Bible. Or if you haven't got one that you can get in your hands yourself, at least uh, get sight of one. And uh, turn to that passage we just had uh, so well read to us uh, from John chapter 20. You should find it on page 1000. And 89 of the church Bibles, 1089. Uh, it may be some time since you opened up a Bible. Uh, maybe you've never done it before. Well, now's your chance. Today is Easter Sunday, and we've been celebrating in word and song uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but uh, I've been enjoying it. I've been enjoying the atmosphere today, enjoying the music and enjoying uh, the readings that we've had together. So I'm slightly conscious, feeling slightly self-conscious, in fact, as I stand up to speak now, that I may be rudely interrupting the mood. I also feel we we do need to stop for a moment at this point. We need something like the icy cold blast of reality at this point. And we simply have to ask ourselves the hard question, is what we've been celebrating this evening actually true? Is what we've been celebrating this evening, it's been great, but is it actually true? And I know that there will be some amongst us here this evening uh, shaking our heads, uh, if not doing that physically, then doing it inwardly, thinking, well, that you know, the music was nice. Uh, The people were mostly nice. Uh, But there's nothing, there is nothing that will persuade me that a man was raised from the dead. And nobody's going to persuade me that that has any relevance for my life today. Now, it may well be that there's there's nothing I can say, nothing I can say uh, in the next 20 minutes or so to change your mind on that. But I feel it may just be possible to persuade you to engage more seriously with the eyewitness evidence that we find in the gospel accounts of Jesus in the Bible. That's my aim. That's why I just a moment ago got you to open up a Bible. And to help me to do that as well, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to call uh, two witnesses uh, to help us this evening. Uh, One of them won't surprise you too much. He's Thomas the Apostle the key character in this account from uh, chapter 20 of the Gospel of John that we just had read and we're going to be looking at in a moment. He's often known as Doubting Thomas. You may have heard of him uh, before, but I think that's a a pretty unfair name and I'm going to call him Believing Thomas instead because believing is actually the most important thing that he does here. But my other witness might surprise you a little. My other witness is the famous unbelieving Thomas scientist Richard Dawkins. Uh, Now I have wondered a little bit whether this is a a good idea, partly because some Christian speakers wheel uh, Richard Dawkins into their talks, a bit like a pantomime villain, uh, hoping their audience is going to cry out boo and hiss and he's behind you and and such like. Uh, But I want to say up front that I'm actually, I'm actually very thankful for Richard Dawkins. In fact, if I were to pick a figure in public life who has helped people to understand what faith really is and to see the uh, stupidity and ignorance of blind faith. Uh, It wouldn't be an archbishop. 
Uh, It wouldn't even be a well-known Christian writer at all. It would be Richard Dawkins. And tonight, you'll see why. Now, the other reason for calling on Richard Dawkins at this point is um, he's actually written on the passage that we're looking at now. He's written on this very passage. In his very first book, a very successful book, it was published in uh, 1976. Uh, It's called The Selfish Gene. Uh, This is what he says about faith and Thomas the Apostle. Listen to this. Listen to this very carefully. We'll come back to it later. Faith means this, says Dawkins. Faith means blind trust. In the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence, the story of doubting Thomas is told, not that we should admire Thomas, but so we could admire the other apostles in comparison. Thomas demanded evidence. The other apostles, whose faith was so strong that they did not need evidence, are held up to us as worthy of imitation. Such blind faith secures its own perpetuation by the simple unconscious expedient of discouraging rational inquiry. Now, we'll come back to that uh, little quote a little later. But for the moment, let's pick on something within that that we could agree on. Richard Dawkins was, at least in one respect, right. Thomas demanded evidence before he would believe. We'll see that very clearly in a moment from the passage itself. But we should also see, we shall also see that this is not, emphatically not, a story written to discourage us from seeking evidence before we believe. In fact, what we'll discover is that it's much more about seeking the right kind of evidence before we believe. It's much more about the conditions that we set for belief. And actually, that turns everything on its head. You see, we might begin by thinking that this is a story which Christianity has cooked up uh, to protect itself from rational inquiry. But no, actually, this story turns the spotlight away from Christianity rounds onto us. In fact, onto our unreasonable refusal to engage with the evidence. So first then, Thomas demanded evidence. We should indeed believe on the basis of sound evidence. It's right to believe on the basis of sound evidence. Let's take a look at the account with me. And ask the question as we look through it together, is anyone here, anyone here expected to believe without evidence? So right at the beginning, the other disciples come to Thomas and they say, we have seen the Lord. And you can tell from the tone, I think, that they they now believe something extraordinary and life-changing has happened. Something that's blown their minds. But do they believe without evidence? Well, no, they have seen the Lord. In fact, the night before he died, Jesus promised that the 12, that is his closest disciples, that they, they would indeed see this evidence. You will see me, he said. This was his promise. You will see me. And now they have. Now, I just want to pause for a moment there uh, to remind you what uh, Richard Dawkins said uh, about this. These are the words he said, remember them. Quote, the other disciples' faith was so strong 
that they did not need evidence. End quote. It's quite remarkable when you actually look at the story, isn't it? When you look at the evidence. Uh, Dawkins clearly hasn't checked it out. Uh, He's got it wrong. He's made a mistake. The other apostles do indeed need evidence. They see the evidence of the risen Jesus and then they believe. It's a slightly remarkable thing. We'll come back to that mistake that Dawkins makes right at the end. But going back to the passage for, for a moment, for the moment, uh, the next person who believes this is, of course, Thomas himself, down in the middle of the counter, the, the line or verse that's uh, numbered with a 25. Thomas says this to Jesus, my Lord and my God. In other words, he now believes something about Jesus that he didn't believe before. But again, we ask the question, does he believe that without evidence? Well, no. When Thomas sees the evidence in front of him, he cries out, my Lord and my God. Because he has seen none less than the life-giving God of the universe in human form. And he has seen in Jesus' wounds that the holes left by the nails that pinned him to the cross, the gash in his side left by a soldier's sword. Thomas has seen that Jesus was dead, very, very firmly dead, but now he is Alive. He's seeing for himself what God has done through Jesus in order to bring life to others. But what about us? Are we expected to, to believe all that without any evidence? Well, take a look with me at what John, the author of this account, says about that. Why has he written this all down for us? Look at the very final session, set, sentence of the, uh, of the passage with me. Verse 31. This is what John says, the author. These are written, this account is written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These are written, this account of Jesus is written as recorded eyewitness testimony, as evidence, so that we can believe. Now, granted, it's a different kind of evidence to the evidence seen by the Twelve. You know, it's written evidence rather than visual evidence, but it's evidence. And what we'll discover shortly is it's just as good, just as good. Now, uh, at Christchurch here, we run a seven-week course called uh, Christianity Explored. Amongst the the pieces of paper you were given on the way in, you should have a a flyer like this one, which describes a little bit about the course, and even some space for you to sign up for the next one. Uh, And it's, of course, for people who don't yet believe these things about Jesus, but do want to find out more about it. And let me say, if if it was true, if it was true that Christian belief was a blind trust, quote, in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence, uh, then that course would be an extremely strange course. Um, And I guess what would have to happen is that I suppose we'd have the, the Christian believers perhaps at one end of the room and everyone else standing or sitting around at the other end of the room, and the believers would shout across the room, look, we don't have anything particular to say to you, uh, but, you know, we just want you to believe. Please, would you just believe? And then everyone else on the other side of the room uh, would look at each other slightly blankly at that point and wondering what they were supposed to do. And so it would be week after week for seven weeks. Of course, it's not like that at all. Instead, you, you meet around 
tables in small groups and open in front of you will be evidence. And you can raise any question, any question you like, any objection you like. And uh, people who have been on this course tend to say that, uh, although they weren't too sure about going on it in the first place, actually it was very interesting and and even quite fun. It's right, it's right to believe on the basis of sound evidence. So, okay, you might say, well, that's all fine, that's good. It's good to believe on the basis of evidence, but evidence-based belief does mean, doesn't it, setting some conditions. You know, the, the evidence has to be good enough to believe. What are, the, what, are the, what are the right conditions for us to believe? So this is the second thing we need to address this evening. It's right to believe on the basis of sound evidence, but what evidence counts as sound evidence? Well, this is the second main implication from this passage. In this story, Jesus wants us to know And John, writing up this account, wants us to know that it's reasonable, it's utterly reasonable to believe on the basis of the eyewitness testimony. Believe on the basis of the eyewitness testimony. Let's uh, hear from the beginning of the story again. So this is from verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But this is the condition Thomas then sets. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. So we've said that it's right to believe on the basis of evidence and We've said also that it's evidence-based belief means setting some sort of conditions. But the question is, of course, are we setting the right conditions? Are they reasonable conditions? Yeah, so take Thomas. Take Thomas. We've said that it was reasonable for him to set conditions. In Thomas's case, we can also say, we can additionally say that it was right for him to expect to see the risen Jesus. He is one of the twelve, as I was saying before. He's one of those select disciples to whom Jesus said, you will see me. You know, he stands in a, in a special group in that respect. So it is right for him to expect to see Jesus. What he gets wrong, what he gets wrong is making that expectation of sight a condition for his belief. And then on top of that, he adds this extra condition. is rather strange, isn't it? It's a sort of hands-on medical examination of Jesus' wound, sort of poking his finger in every possible place. But look with me, the moment that, Jesus, that Thomas's conditions are actually met in this story, the moment the conditions are met, he realizes instantly, instantly just how unreasonable he has been. So verse 26, Jesus came and he stood among them and he offers to Thomas, his most gracious offer, isn't it? Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. But Thomas instantly, instantly and simply says, my Lord and my God. So what would the the, the right condition have been, the right condition for belief? Well, I hope you can see what this whole account is driving towards. In fact, it's the, the whole of John's gospel in many ways is driving towards this. It's, a, it's enough 
it's enough to hear the testimony of one of Jesus' appointed eyewitnesses. Thomas is one of the twelve, so he was right to expect to see Jesus himself at some point, but he should have believed the moment he heard that eyewitness testimony from the other disciples as they came to him saying, we have seen the Lord. He can expect to see Jesus, yes, but he should have believed right then and there. And when he does believe, Jesus says this to him. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. But, but blessed also are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus wants us to know that we don't need to see like Thomas saw. It's reasonable to believe on the basis of the eyewitness testimony alone. Now, I suspect that uh, some of you may be uh, thinking at this point, well, that's all well and good. But you know, Jesus can say what he likes about this, but I'm afraid that for me, that is not enough. The eyewitness testimony is simply not enough. Let me ask you if, if that is you here this evening. What would be enough? What would be enough to bring you to believe this? And as you think about that, if you're being honest, it may well be, if you examine yourself properly, if you, it may well be that there will be nothing would be enough for you. There's absolutely nothing that anyone could show you or say to you that would be enough for you to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I can remember, I can remember being like that. I can remember setting the condition for belief impossibly high. And if you're doing that uh, here tonight too, I just want you to be aware that that is what you're doing. That is what you're doing and how deeply unreasonable it is. Or perhaps we might be thinking this, well, why don't you just give me what Thomas got? Then I'll believe. If I could see him here tonight, say, then I will believe. But actually, if the risen Lord Jesus did appear right here, right now, perhaps down the middle in front of us here, I I suspect, and and it's hard to imagine anything more spectacular than that, is is there? You, You can't really trump that in any ways. But I suspect that even if that were to happen, you still might not believe. You see, unlike the 12, we don't know what Jesus looked like. We haven't lived alongside him for three years. We haven't seen him die. We haven't seen the nails put into his hands and the sword put into his side. You know, it could be anyone standing here in front of you. No, Jesus insists, and John insists, hearing the witness of the 12 eyewitnesses is enough. Hearing the testimony even of just Thomas, who saw and believed, is enough for us to believe too, without seeing. And John, who passes on that eyewitness testimony to us here tonight, insists so too. Look again at the end of the passage, verse 31. These eyewitness accounts are written for you, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And let me just suggest to you this. So 
let me suggest to you that you already almost certainly think that eyewitness testimony is enough to believe extraordinary things. You almost certainly already accept that. Uh, So, for example, this is a very famous book uh, from the last century. It's called uh, Night, and it's by Elie uh, Wiesel. It's Wiesel's deeply, it's a deeply disturbing book, by the way, but it's Wiesel's deeply disturbing account of his childhood experiences at Auschwitz and Buchenwald. And, uh, you know, I have to say that I read this, and I would like to not believe it. But I read it, and I do believe it. And most reasonable people read this book and believe it. And the eyewitness testimonies of other Holocaust survivors. Uh, you may have heard of the, the Shoah Foundation. Uh, there are a couple of them, I think, actually. A foundation was set up at the end of the 20th century, and it was uh, set up with a very honorable aim, I think, of collecting the eyewitness evidence of Holocaust survivors uh, while they were still alive. You know, a lot, a lot of the survivors are now uh, dying just from old age. And the foundation was set up to collect those eyewitness testimonies so that they would survive for future generations. Now, of course, there are people in the world who uh, very sadly and quite wickedly try to deny the Holocaust, but it is, in the end, the the thing that really convinces us of the truth, the awful and extraordinary truth. It is that believable eyewitness evidence of many, many people who saw it for themselves and who have nothing to gain from making it up. And that is what... The Gospels are too. The believable eyewitness evidence of many people who saw it for themselves and who had nothing to gain from making it up. Now, I'm not uh, at all, of course, suggesting that we should believe every piece of eyewitness testimony that we hear. Now, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? It is worth checking out examining the the evidence carefully for authenticity. But again, I suppose the question is, have you done that? Have you checked out the evidence? I mean, really checked it out. Uh, These books, they're they're called Bibles. You may have come across them. They're they're fairly widely available in this country. So why not take one of those up and read one of the gospel accounts for yourself if you've not done it before? Why not ask a Christian friend to read one with you? You might think that's quite a big ask of a Christian friend, but let me tell you, they would be over the moon. They would be over the moon if you asked them to do that. Or come along to the, to the Christianity Explore course and examine the Gospel of Mark over, over seven weeks. But as we finish, uh, let me take you back to 1976, to where we began And I want you to imagine a room in Oxford where a young scientist called Richard Dawkins is putting the finishing touches to his first major book, uh, The Selfish Gene. And he's tapping away at his typewriter. You can ask an older person later what a typewriter is. (laughs) He's tapping away at his typewriter, and at a certain moment, at a certain moment as he's writing, a thought comes to him about the story story of Thomas from the Bible. Perhaps it's some memory from Sunday school deep in the the past. And that's a very decisive moment, isn't it? Because that moment, uh, Richard Dawkins could stop. He could pause at that point and go and check 
the story out. Uh, let's be charitable. Perhaps there's no Bible around. There's no Bible in the house. But there are, there are you know, as I just said, Bibles are pretty widely available. It wouldn't be a hard thing for him to go and check. But at that moment, he chose not to. He chose to rely instead upon some dim and distant memory. He decided he would rather go into print with an inaccurate and misremembered story in a book that's now sold over a million copies worldwide than take the effort to check out that story and make sure he got it right. It's fascinating, isn't it? Dawkins uh, defines blind faith like this as trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. But in that moment, in that decision, he's exhibiting just that. He is exhibiting precisely the same refusal to engage with the evidence. Richard Dawkins says God's a delusion. In his mind, there's no doubt or confusion. And showing his gumption rules out God by assumption in order to reach his conclusion. Why? Why does he do that? And if you two are holding back from examining the evidence, um, if you've had to perhaps force yourself to look at the text of the Bible on the screen, if it was difficult for you when I asked you to a little while ago to pick up a Bible for yourself, why? What's the, what's the thing that holds us back from this? I mean, really holds us back from this. Is it, is it, really, is it really the lack of evidence? But if you've never actually checked out the evidence, what is it? And I wonder if it's fear. Uh, the fear of believing like believing Thomas. You see, we much preferred doubting Thomas, didn't we? Because doubt is much more com- comfortable and convenient. But believing Thomas scares us. You know, I do not want to admit that, that I was wrong. You know, I find it hard to admit that I am wrong in the way that Thomas had to. I don't, know what, I don't want to have to face the reality of the risen Jesus and say like he did, my Lord and my God. I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to have to surrender to him like that. And yes, that moment of surrender is, is, in, is indeed a, a deeply humbling experience. But I want to reassure you this morning, uh, this evening, that there is no need to fear. It is also a very wonderful experience. Thomas knew it. Uh, John, the author of this gospel, also wants you to feel and experience it too. The, the kind of deep sense of relief of things set back in the right place. Uh, the burden of trying to live in a, in a broken world by my own strength lifted. Hope in the kind of world, the kind of world described by Elie Wiesel. Now, at that moment of surrender, we do not know where it will take us. We do not know where it will take us, but it does 
bring us? What does it bring us to do? It brings us to sing and to celebrate as we've been singing tonight. We do not yet see the risen Jesus with our own eyes. And yet, as he himself promised in the passage that we've just been looking at, uh, we are yet deeply blessed as he fills our lives by faith and uh, brings us to cry out those very, very precious words, my Lord and my God. I'm just going to pray for us all. Our Heavenly Father, our gracious and kind Heavenly Father, I want to pray first for those who are very close to the kind of belief that Thomas exhibits in this passage who, as they uh, engage with the risen Jesus, speaking from John's gospel tonight, I pray that you might bring them to say in their hearts, right now, my Lord and my God. And Heavenly Father, secondly, I want to pray for those who have been uh, perhaps convicted tonight, perhaps had to admit to themselves that they haven't properly considered the evidence. They do not yet believe, but they're now aware aware that they have been unreasonable in not examining the evidence as they should. Please help them tonight to act on that, to do something about it as soon as they possibly can. And we pray these prayers and ask for this help in the name of our risen Lord Jesus. Amen.